0: C.G. Nelson, welcome to Fritanke Pod.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You work at the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford. That's correct. Yeah. Right, right, and uh, with Nick Bostrom.
1: Yes, yes. He's the he's the leader of our institute here.
0: Exactly, and uh, we published his book Superintelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've had him here as well in the pod. Uh, you work with some other Swedes as well, right? Sundberg.
1: Yeah, that's correct. There's quite a few actually over at our institute. So Anders Sandberg, yes. uh, I'm not sure if he's been on the podcast before, but he's a uh, he's a great he's a great researcher to work with. Um, Marcus Anderlung has recently joined us. He's he's um, on the governance of AI team, and um, I think there's a few other Swedes around yeah. as well too.
0: <laughs> Tell me what what um, what took you to this institute? What what was your travel way to get there.
1: <laughs> yes um, uh, so I'm really excited to have been um, offered a position there in October of last year. Um, my previous background is actually in, uh, in medicine and I was working in clinical medicine and wondering how I could have more impact with my career. Mm. Um, I became quite involved in the effective altruism movement um, mm. and I uh, was very convinced that I wanted to do something more useful with my career than what uh, the typical western doctor can do. In, mm. in the western world um, as it were because um, so, you
0: grew up in Australia right
1: um, I actually grew up in Canada but I've been oh. living in Australia for the last 10-11 um, years I went uh-huh. there and ended up staying um, but but yeah so I feel uh, yeah, I feel a little bit of a citizen of the world in some ways and and mm. um, very much uh, want to use the time that I have in my career to, to, to have as much positive impact as I can have. Mm. Um, and the Future Humanity Institute is a place where I believe attracts people that want to have a lot of positive impact. Mm. Uh, it's um, a place that focuses on uh, what's uh, possible for, for our species to do if we, um, if we can navigate some risks in the next coming centuries well. Um, and it's also a place to have uh, many multidisciplinary discussions on a lot of very fascinating topics and so I'm excited to be able to go in and um, have intellectual conversations on a daily basis yes so I can
0: imagine <laughs> you have that a lot but uh, when, when you, you were born in Canada
1: right ah, I was I was born in Australia actually but um, to Americans <laughs> I, have, I, have th- I have three I was born with pretty much with three citizenships. <laughs> so, really? Yes. yes so your, parents are,
0: <laughs> your parents are Americans.
1: They were American and, and doing their PhDs in Australia, yes. Yeah. Okay.
0: So, PhDs in what? In what area?
1: Um, my mother is in molecular biology mm-hmm. um, and my father, um, he, he was actually over there um, uh, doing uh, marine biology and then um, supporting, supporting my mother while she had us. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you have sisters and brothers?
1: I have five, yeah. Really? Yeah, my parents had uh, six children, yeah. Really? Okay.
0: <laughs> and you're the 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 oldest
1: oldest girl. You are. I have um, an older brother and then four little sisters. Uh uh uh,
0: Um, But uh, how old were you when you moved to Canada?
1: I was six months old. My mom got a postdoc there. She was actually, I think she was almost going to come to Sweden on a postdoc, but she chose between the two. So Uh maybe there's an alternate trajectory where I would have ended up in Sweden.
0: (laughs) And how long did you live in Canada then?
1: Uh, Till I was 17, and then I moved. So you moved on your own, so to speak,
0: to Australia? Yes. Not with your parents?
1: Uh, No, no. No. Um, uh, Although they've migrated back since as well to to a different part of Australia. (laughs) They love it there.
0: Okay, I see. Uh, so, so now you live in Australia, except for your work in London well, or in Oxford. Yes, I yes, mean. I
1: recently moved six months ago um, to to the UK. Yeah, <laughs> my first time living in the UK, um, and I'm there working at the Future Humanity Institute, um, and I'm also completing a um, DPhil studies there while I'm while I'm.
0: What did you say? And
1: uh, sorry, uh, it's the Oxford term for PhD. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. In what area? infectious disease modeling. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at some theoretical questions with regards to uh, large-scale pandemics Mm -hmm. um, and trying to answer some ways that we could go about uh, navigating some of the risks associated with infectious diseases.
0: Mm. Uh, I'm going to ask you more about that, but first I want to understand what inspired you as a a child to get interested in these things. How Ah. how did that happen?
1: Um, Well, both my parents are scientists and I'm just always been fascinated by science. It it probably wasn't until university, though, that I also became quite fascinated by uh, philosophy as well, too. Um, I read a lot of Peter Singer and became Mm. quite convinced by utilitarian arguments. Um, I then I I very much have always uh, had my first love of science, though, so I did undergraduate studies in science and then uh, went on to medicine um, but then um kind of got a, a re, uh, re-invoking back into back into philosophy again uh, when the effect of altruism has been, started taking off. And um, the idea that you could use your time and the choices that you make to have as much positive impact in the world as possible was something that really resonated with me. So mm-hmm. I um, uh, kind of switched around out of clinical medicine. I did a master's of public health um, and then got quite concerned about um, um, the risk that we might have from pandemics and and um, how I could use my career to to make that um, that risk a bit lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so became very uh, excited by the opportunity that uh, Future Humanity Institute was hiring, and uh, there was this opportunity to to kind of uh, switch around and move to Oxford and and work on a, a different, mm-hmm. very different research area than I think a lot of people
0: do. Do you consider yourself a utilitarianist? Um, I
1: would, for the most part, I would. Um, uh, there's, there's some at my institute that that uh, you ha- have some very strong arguments. I think that uh, ab- about some of where utilitarianism kind of breaks down. Mm. Um, and there's also a lot of work on um, uh, things of such as like moral uncertainty and, uh, and ways that you can actually navigate such um, breakdowns. But um, I'd say for the most part, my my actions and my and my value system is based on utilitarianism. Yes.
0: Have you met Peter Singer?
1: I have, yes, in Melbourne. So I lived in Melbourne and um, I was involved for a bit there with The Life You Can Save Charity, which is a um, um, charity that he runs. And um, I've met him a few times through there. Mm. Yeah,
0: because we published that book, The Life You Can Save. Oh, wonderful. So we had him here as well.
1: Oh, great. I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a very good orator. He speaks very well. He He, He makes his arguments very well. Uh, very much admire Peter Singer. <laughs>
0: he's he, he and he's quite fun as well. I I had him for dinner. Uh, I remember w- while he was here in my house, and we discussed quantum mechanics. And the next day he flew yes. back to <laughs> Australia, and he sent me an email, and he said, "You know, on the plane, I actually uh, figured out all these." Paradoxes. And then I fell asleep, and when I woke up, I had forgotten it. Oh, gosh. Oh, I think gosh. he was joking <laughs> yes, actually. I think so. I think so. I think so. <laughs> but uh, no, I like mm. him a lot. Um, but uh, okay, talking about pandemics, um, don't you think that <clears throat> pandemics, I mean, the risks are increasing because we are flying so much around in the world? I mean, it's so easy to g- cross the c- continents.
1: Yes, it's, it's interesting. Um, I do think in some ways there are, um, there are risks that, we've, that our species have never faced before, that the geographical distance between any two humans is much, much shortened, given, given yeah. how much air travel we do. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. At the same time, we've never had uh, medicine so good before. Um, we've never had the ability to, to treat um, infectious diseases like we can with therapeutics, um, to have um, supportive care when, when people's, uh, people are quite unwell, even if you don't have a specific treatment for the disease. Uh, we also can diagnose and understand disease like we've never been able to do before so it's not it's not completely clear to me that the 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 risks and benefits that we've gained through modernization um completely work out to be more risk but um Mm -hmm. given given the uh connectedness of our world um it does make me quite cautious about thinking about how easy it would be for for a pathogen to to travel around quite quickly to to many countries
0: what what can we actually do to to decrease the risk of a global pandemic?
1: Well, there's a lot of work that uh, goes on um, in public health departments and health security in in other agencies where, um, who are quite uh, focused on this and 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 reducing this risk. Uh, one of the one of the main things is of of course to to understand the risks and a lot of the risks um, that we've uh, focused on in, in many nations is based on um, pandemic flu, which is um, well, Probably still remains the the largest uh annual risk that we have in terms of a disease, and so understanding uh how how flu spreads how it how it evolves and mutates and can could become uh more deadly or more transmissible year to year is very useful in understanding how we could go about uh, doing things such as uh updating our vaccines every year and um, making sure that our health facilities are well the uh the ability to prepare, though, starts uh, getting a lot more complicated when you start thinking about novel risks. And that's something that um, at my institute we we focus on as well, thinking about diseases that we haven't yet seen yet in uh, populations um, and how you would go about preparing for those types of risks. Mm. Um, uh, what kind
0: of diseases do you think about? Well,
1: yours? um so, so there's been a lot of uh, uh, um, new diseases that have actually come out in the last few few decades. Things such as um, SARS um, is a is a novel pathogen that's come out. MERS-COV is a novel pathogen that's come out um, only only um, less than a decade ago in in um, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we're more concerned about things that we we at this point in time we actually don't know about yet. So, so the World Health Organization um, in 2018. In there, They have a blueprint list of where they want research and development for diseases to go into. So they have a list of priority diseases. Um, and last year was the first year they included what they call disease X on that list. And what disease X is, is uh, not a specific disease uh, or anything like that. Um, it's the idea that uh, we need to prepare for an unknown that we haven't faced yet. Um, and that's, that's very much in line with our thinking at, at the Future Humanity Institute of going, if you have a new thing that happens to a population, it's, it's, uh, it could be quite devastating. It could be quite difficult to get information and understanding very early on. Um, but that could be critical to, to averting um, many deaths, m- much suffering and uh, potentially um, a catastrophe.
0: Mm. Do you think that uh, bi- biotica resistance will be a big problem?
1: Um, it's definitely a big problem in terms of modern day medicine we've we've um we've had uh, already um, seen uh, multidrug resistance in in a, in a multitude of different diseases um and and new ones seem to be um, coming up each year. um however, um in terms of the types of so so I'll explain that we it, we focus very much on a um, on situations that are probably a lot lower probability in terms of actual ha- actually happening versus um, other concerns that a lot. Of um, I'd say more traditional uh, public health and, and biosecurity areas are focused on. Um, we're focused on things that could cause uh, very large-scale destruction to to, to 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 civilizations and to people. Um, it doesn't appear to me uh, that antibiotic resistance on its own would be uh, it, it would be enough to, to cause that level of, of problem. Um, y- even though it uh, has the potential to to wreak havoc on health systems um, over the coming decades, and that that is something that, that uh, um, is a priority for a lot of countries to begin addressing. Mm.
0: Mm. Um, I know that your institute also is working on uh, the issue of artificial intelligence. Is that something yes, you are... Great. Uh, my, in...
1: me myself I'm not um, I'm fascinated as a as an observer <laughs> um, and um, go to do, go to some very interesting meetings where people people discuss this um, very much my area is kind of a uh, little brother a little sister to um, the artificial intelligence work that goes on in my institute mm-hmm. um, but um, it is another um, on that on that list of, of risks that we consider in terms of things that could cause large-scale destruction um, um, artificial intelligence is probably at the top of that list and that is mm-hmm. our institute um, has it as a priority a research area
0: Mm. You work with Max Tiagmark as well, because he's also doing... Ah, yeah, area. correct.
1: Yeah, no, he, um, he Swedish. works... Swedish. Yes, in Swedish <laughs> as well, correct. Uh, um, so he he does work uh, with um, the director, Nick Bostrom, and, and others at my institute. Um, I haven't seen him myself. I think he mostly stays in his time um, um, elsewhere. <laughs> and mm. so. Um, but he is quite um, aligned on a lot of the concerns that we have um, and has been quite a good voice um, in terms of... Um, Advocating for more people to, to uh, take these risks seriously, fi- finding, finding ways to navigate some very complex risks uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence, um, things that, that aren't as straightforwardly intuitive about how we'd actually go about mitigating some of those risks.
0: But do you share um, do you share Max and I think Nick's uh, sort of philosophical view that consciousness could arise in a machine? Do you share that? Um,
1: yeah. I, I think uh, theoretically, yes, it could be. It could be possible. Um, I, I fr- from the standpoint of um, someone who studied uh, biology and, and and medicine before, um, the, I don't have any reason to believe that the consciousness that our our brain, which is based on physics and chemistry, produce, um, is not something that could be uh, having an, an an analogous structure within a machine like um, mm. structure environment. Um, So whatever is going on in our brain to produce consciousness, I I I don't think that that's uh, unique to 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 this particular structure. At the same time, um, whether or not um, an artificial intelligent machine could show what we would recognize as consciousness, but not actually be conscious, that's a that's a very much murkier area in terms of um, being able to tell whether or not a machine is actually is actually thinking or just yeah. How could we know? Yeah, it's very it's very hard. And so philosophical zombies is a is a common. Hmm. How um, could uh, we
0: know that even? with another person
1: it is hard and Mm. we 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 have heuristics and we we look around us and we look at other people and we only can really know our own experience but Mm. we we um we can see from other people's behavior that we that we should at least give them the reasonable doubt and i think (laughs) i think that's what a lot of philosophers do come to um in in some ways of going um even if you can't know in the absolutist term of of knowing um uh the the risks of uh harming a conscious being i think uh get greater and greater if you decide that you are are not going to um uh, if you 're going to deny it uh the yeah. uh, recognition of consciousness mm.
0: so it sounds like you have a fairly philosophically naturalistic view of the world it you don't you're not religious it sounds like
1: <laughs> uh no no i 'm not religious i never never been religious but um but i um I do think that there's a you can you can look at the world and i i very much like i said at the the beginning um love science and i love mm-hmm. um epi- empirical ways about uh exploring your world at the same time um there are some uh kind of more complex questions that that is very difficult to um to gather empirical data on mm-hmm. and so being able to uh navigate kind of more complex phenomena is requires a kind of more uh inductive reasoning approach if you will which i which i think uh, is is best summed up as as philosophy as as um these
0: these types of uh, approaches um have you been uh, looking into the field of uh what is it called in english experimental moral philosophy i mean where you do mm. magnetic brain scans to see what part of the brains are active when you make moral decisions and so on?
1: Um, I, I like Joshua have, Green. Uh, okay, yes, Joshua Green, yes. So Joshua Green and um, Sam Harris, I think, is quite interested yeah. in this as well. Uh, no, my, myself, no, I haven't. Um, beyond just a very cursory <laughs> um, reading into that. Um, I do find it fascinating, and I do find it, um, like I was saying, if, if consciousness is um, an emergent property of our brain, um, um, things like moral philosophy and, and our moral decision making, I, I, you know, probably are tied to to physical structures um, mm. that you could, a, as we get better better at actually peeking into what the brain is actually doing during these decision making, um, figure out where they are, figure out how they
0: work. <laughs> but do you do you do you believe in? Um, I mean, you're not religious, you say, mm. but do you think there are objective moral values, like Peter Singer, I think, or Derek Parfit said? Or do you think it's a social construct? <laughs>
1: um, I I find it very difficult to um, talk about objectivity in terms of uh, the way that I usually think about objectivity. Mm. Um, in terms of um, does the does the universe in and of itself or matter in and of itself have um, have Uh, Moral mandates or anything like this And um, I find it very hard to stomach The idea that that it does Um, Mm. However the way that Derek Parfit and uh, Peter Singer talk about objective truths They They um, and, and again, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a trained philosopher, so this is, um, this is, mm, this is a scientist okay. coming at it from, a, from a, uh, an angle of curiosity. But um, the, the way that they talk about it, um, there seems to be more uh, fundamentals about how we approach things and about, about uh, especially the, um, the existence of suffering that seems to uh, be very difficult from a moral perspective to ignore as a, as a, as a phenomenon that, that, that should be avoided for anything that's capable of feeling suffering. Um, and so um, in a more nuanced sense and not in the, in the sense that I think about objectivity, I do think that there there is merit to that argument.
0: Because uh, when you talk to religious people, sometimes you get the argument that, uh, I'm not religious either, uh, you get the argument that if you don't have such a creator, then there is no objective moral values at all. And, yes, mm-hmm. uh, you've heard it before. Yes, I've probably. heard this before. Yes. How do you sort of answer that argument?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think you go to, you, you, there's, it's not a binary between moral nihilism and, and, um, having to have kind of more a deontological approach. Um, it, it seems to me that we, um, especially as thinking conscious beings, can, can agree on some very basic things. I, I might not know exactly what the experience is like of another conscious. But but I, I can know that for myself that suffering is bad, and I can know that uh, whatever suffering looks like for you is is not something that uh, is in my right as well as uh, in my mandate to to to, to uh, exert on another another conscious being, mm. um, and that's something that uh, non-conscious beings don't don't really have the property of. So I think you can arrive, you can look at the world um, empirically, and you can you can arrive at truths uh, in in the broader sense of truth uh not from a angle of of uh, th- this has an absolute basis in exactly how the fundamental laws of physics work or something but in in a how how do complex beings like like uh, that that are based on biology work mm-hmm. yeah and that um yeah i think i think you can still navigate this world and make decisions and, and 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 adhere to morality without needing to invoke a creator
0: yeah i agree with you on that of course but um uh are you worried about the sort of trends in the world right now, they're very anti scientific trends. A lot of people seem to deny science when it suits their needs, yeah. so to speak, in whether it's climate or whether it's evolution <laughs> in America, this creationist movement or intelligent design movement. Does this worry you and how to if it does, how to um how to work against that?
1: It does worry me, um and it's worried me for a long time and it um unfortunately um, seems to be something that isn't just slowed down either. There was no. a, um, uh, even just recently um, about um, the anti-vaxxer movement exactly, um, and, yes. and the increased rates that are going on here in um, here in um, um, Europe. I, I think that um, I, I have this optimism that if we that if we as a society could really embrace how how. How much science has been able to give us, as well as how how good this method is about exploring your world, about actually being able to gather empirical data and come to a truth that isn't based just on um, superstition or prior beliefs, but um, rigorously tested. That I think this is what has allowed us in the last two hundred years to become so much more than what we used to be, um, and that 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 seems to not be a a rhetoric that's kind of that resonates through society. There's this, there's this mistrust. There's this low understanding of science um, that I just don't think needs to be there. If people realize how much, if they look around them, their lives are so much improved by by science. Um, I I think um, in terms of the anti creationist arguments in, in the US and 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 other places, um, the mistrust of vaccines. I I, I don't think that. Uh, People, uh, unfortunately, fully um, fully are engaging with the kind of more uh, logic-based and the in the reasoned arguments behind these. It's it's more um, a kind of idea that permeates because of the people that they hear around them, and, and in some ways, this this uh, in and of itself is quite dangerous because because it's not amenable to to reasoned argument, um, mm. and so. I, I do think, if you looked at a larger scale, though, that we've we've changed from that mode, out of that mode, uh, for the vast majority of society, and mm. I do think that that is a trend that, uh, if, if you if you if you zoom out, hopefully, will continue on because the 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 rejection of science, the rejection of reason, uh, is is something that if you if you do long enough, will 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 hurt us, and that's that's something that will then become apparent to people who, who who do such things the you know the measles cases that are going through um some um uh communities right now in new york and in other places um i i do wonder if that will if that will uh, uh change people's mind in some ways
0: <laughs> because you also have the rise of uh, religious fundamentalism around the yeah. world and and uh, i mean in all the world religions hindu fascism or hindu nationalism at least in india and uh Buddhist extremists in Burma and Sri Lanka, and and of course Islam and also Christianity. There's actually a big debate right now about whether or not Sweden should allow a Christian preacher to come into Sweden because he's really he wants to homosexuals to be killed and so on. I mean, he's really hate preacher, Christian hate preacher. Mm. Uh, And uh, how should how should the sort of enlightened world deal with this? Because it seems to get Worse,
1: I agree. I agree. Um, it, it's difficult, and in um, the country that I've been living up until now for the last ten years, I'm um, Australia, um, has mm. taken a very hard line on this, and that we've um, we do stop uh, people who who practice hate speech from mm. from coming and giving giving talks in our country, and that usually brings a lot of controversy in itself because. Um, most Western democracies very much uh, re- uh, d- hate, for good reason, uh, to, to, to suppress freedom of speech. Mm. However, f- freedom of speech and and the the ability to spout hatred, I- in my mind, is, is is something that needs to be really much weighed up against against the um, the effects that you can have on on impressionable people, on on society at the whole. Um, the, we, we can see already that um, using the anti vaccine movement as an example, mm. that um, people who are very much uncertain in their own opinions about the safety of vaccines, if you go out and you search for information, it's, uh, it's, it's very not clear to me that, that the first information you come across is actually scientifically based no. or, or tested. It's the loudest voice. Mm. And having loud voices in our society that are spouting... Hatred that are spouting, um, yeah, homophobic remarks or or uh, anti scientific remarks. I think is, is something that can only be met in kind with with a louder voice of, of reason, a louder voice of of um, of explanation. And I, I I don't think it's easy to navigate, but I, I do think as uh, as a whole we need to come up and uh, behind the idea that that um no the, these these voices of hatred are not something that that uh, we we condone, um, I think in some ways um New Zealand has been a good example of this about the community support that's pulled uh, that's poured out after the Christchurch mm. shootings as well against this kind of white supremacy type type thinking and 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 uh I think in some ways that's the uh, on a lesser scale, that type of, um, no, we're not going to condone this, is something society needs to do for for homophobic remarks and, and, and anti-science remarks.
0: But isn't it difficult, I mean, if you have a, a fundamental freedom of speech, isn't it difficult to stop someone before they have said, have said something? I mean, rather they say it and then you can hold them, prosecute them according to the law.
1: Correct. Yeah, and I, and that does get very difficult. Um, I uh the way, and um, I'm not an expert in this, but I believe the way that Australia has gotten around this is um asking people's intention for what they they want to come and speak about, mm-hmm. and um and and, uh, whether or not their character is going to incite. Just uh, just again from a more utilitarian perspective, is this is this uh, is this talk and is this uh, this direction trajectory that we want to push the public conversation? And if it's going to go towards this, uh, very negative or very. Uh, um uh inciting hatred point of view do, do we want to do that and um it's um it's not always clear what, what what people are going to say but um if they have a track record of saying this and then they say their intention is to go to um talk about uh, uh something inflammatory i think that that in and of itself is probably is probably grounds i i think it's very hard to catch in the first instance but i think i think we could at least give the mm. Um, mm. benefit of doing it then <laughs>
0: Okay. Um okay, finally I want to ask you uh what is your what is your vision for for the future of humanity institute? <laughs> I mean, what do you want to achieve? Uh-huh. If you are there for 10 years or something. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah,
1: I I think I think what our institute uh offers uniquely to the world is this is this um idea that uh, if we can navigate navigate the risks of this century well, uh, there is so much goodness waiting for our species and for conscious life in general, Mm -hmm. Um, that that, uh, we don't need to sit and only think about the past and the present, but thinking about the future of where we could go of of what we could of what we could achieve here on this planet, what we could achieve by by going out and colonizing space, um, is something that's not just not just uplifting in an emotional sense, but almost a a, a mandate if you think about it from the perspective of how many. Valuable and uh, worthwhile human, human lives or other lives could possibly exist if we were able to uh, coordinate in such a way to, to organize this to become I mm. um, I think, I think um, for, for me personally that that, that, that is very much this, this kind of grandiose as it were because it is quite grandiose, mm. but I, I do think we, we need that sometimes in mm. society and in the world. But this this kind of uh, forward thinking, long term future thinking view is very much coupled to me with um, trying to reduce risks of things that might actually stop that from happening, and that's that's why I care about um, uh, biological risks and pandemics is because I do really feel that these are risks that uh, that. That could threaten that future, and mm-hmm. and the risk that um, I feel that if um, uh, I'm able to help contribute to this research field, that maybe maybe there'll be a small reduction in that risk if 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 I do my job well, and so um, that's that's what motivates me going forward, and I do hope to to achieve at least some some of that. <laughs>
0: and you and you you believe that we will be able to deal with the threats like nuclear weapons or climate.
1: I, I I remain optimistic that if humans get together and we uh, even even when they're complex and even when they're 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 uh, global reaching like 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 nuclear war and um, climate change and pandemics like you were saying it's it's something that we actually uh, can sit down and even though it looks intractable at the beginning we can actually find ways to 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 navigate it uh, and coordinate to, to to overcome it it just requires this this momentum to build behind this of of, of realizing risks uh, something i i just i really truly want us to be able to do as a species is that we're very good at being reactive when there's a problem in front of us we can we can uh, react we can get together we can react and and find a way towards a solution however i think the the challenge of this century is is that we face so many unprecedented situations that what we really need to do is become proactive mm. we need to be able to see risks before they've occurred find ways that we can reduce those risks or stop them from happening at all and um that's that's a lot trickier but mm-hmm. i i think we can do it if we if we all get behind it
0: i'm glad to hear that <laughs> um Cassidy Nelson, thank you for coming to our podcast.
1: Thank you.